Johnny, we're back. We took a couple weeks off. Yes, it feels good. As soon as you said that to me, I thought of there's a Saturday Night Live skit where they keep coming back to a sporting event and they keep going, and we're back, just in like crazier and crazier (laughs) ways. So that's all I could think of. And we're back. Is this like current Saturday Night Live or is this like the 70s? This is probably 10 years ago. So it's not not current and not the 70s, but yeah. I mean, I'm still living in the age of Gilda Radner, Dan Aykroyd, and John Belushi. (laughs) Sure, the old Chevy Chase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Garrett Morris. Perfect. 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 All the the older pastors are, are, you know, they like that. They're nodding. They're saying, yes, yes, this is right. They're nodding. Of course, course, the older pastors, the holy ones, of course, they never watched Saturday Night Live. Come on, that's obvious. No, no. They never bought the album Briefcase Full of Blues. I mean, you with, were listening uh, the Blues to that Brothers. Briefcase Full of Blues in your son's Oldsmobile. That was that's a good memory for me. <laughs> so, I'm 16 years old. I play Briefcase Full of Blues while me and my buddy play ping pong in my 1970s family room. I love it. And I leave the record, I leave the album on the turntable and the sun comes through the next day no. through the window. And the record literally crumples. It just, it just, uh, what's it warps? No, the whole thing is warped so bad that you can't even play it. I was crushed. You had a briefcase full of blues then, didn't you? I tell you what, I did, I did. Oh my gosh! So, so I don't know what in the world, how in the world, briefcase full of blues <laughs> got into, back. <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> so, Johnny. I had my friend Rob from yes. Philadelphia yes. He came to visit. We recorded two excellent episodes. That's awesome. Awesome. Yes. Well, we, while he was here. I look forward and, to that. And uh, I took him to the airport, and I got on an airplane and went to visit my mom in New York yeah. for a few days. Mom is now in the memory care unit of mm. uh, a retirement home. And so uh, got to spend some time with her, and that was good. And you yeah. you had a trip. Where'd you go? Well, my trip got canceled because I got sick. I was supposed to get on an airplane, and a few hours before I was supposed to get on that plane, I was uh, ill. Let's put it that way. Say it isn't so. I, I didn't cancel. know that. Yeah, I had to cancel it. I was sick as a dog. I couldn't get on the airplane the way that I was. It was horrible. I was supposed to go to Pennsylvania see a friend, and uh, I'm trying to go in January now. So hopefully I can go in January and make up for it. But kind of a bummer, yeah. That is a bummer. Yeah. That's, that, yeah, that's, that's terrible. Yeah. Well, hey, I, hey, I'm a loyal friend. I yeah. had a good time with my friend. There you go. Perfect. I, I was nervous I was going to get sick before he came because I wasn't feeling that great either. But yeah. then, as it turned out, I, I was fine. You're healthy. You're I a healthy fine. man. Yeah. So you took you took a sick leave. I did. I took. I just took. I've just been busy, and I thought, hey, family and friend leave. Yeah, I thought three hundred episodes. Hey, we we deserve we deserve two Wednesdays off. Two week after three hundred episodes. There you go. So now we now we just have we only have to work like almost six more years. Three hundred more weeks. Yeah, to get to get two more Wednesdays (laughs) off. (laughs) Worth it. That's a good. That's a good structure for earning your time off. I like that. Yeah. So. We're back. It's great to be back. Yes. And we have an excellent episode, but but we've already recorded it. It's already in the hopper. Let's do that. Johnny, we've got four we've got four or five more episodes already recorded. So we've been recording. It's a good feeling. Yeah. We've been recording. We just I just haven't been and you haven't been. Neither one of us have processed this stuff yeah. and, and and published it. So here's uh here's 
This one's going to be episode 301. 301, but, baby. Uh, yeah, let's just, let's just get on with it. Welcome to episode 301 of the 200 Churches Podcast. You guys are pastoring in a small church, and you've been doing it for two years. What are some things you think a lot of our listeners probably struggle with, too, just like you do, and you just want to give voice to a couple of those things? You know, I think great disappointment. (laughs) That people are going to disappoint you. People leave. We've been wrestling with issues. Like, just feeling like we need other people to come alongside and help carry this burden with us. Just, (laughs) I think it's oddly comforting, right? When you hear other pastors and leaders kind of tell you, like, yes, my heart was broken because these people left or, you know, I thought I could trust this person and then, you know, they were gossiping about me or I thought this person had my back. Welcome to the 200 Churches Podcast. We're passionate about providing ministry encouragement to pastors of small churches. We release a brand new episode every Wednesday to do just that for you, all of our small church pastor friends. Now here are two guys who are definitely better together. Friends, pastors, and podcast partners, Jeff and Johnny. This is the 200 Churches Podcast. My name is Johnny Craig, and I am sitting across the digital desk with the one and only, the infatigable, the greatest mentor a guy could ask for. Johnny, if you're going to give me a great word like that, you got to <laughs> pronounce it right. The you, indefatigable. In, indefatigable. <laughs> That's too many. Indefatigable. Okay. But infatigable means I can be fatigued. Oh, no. oh okay. Yeah, in, indefatigable then. <laughs> oh, my. Jeff, Katie, here with you, Johnny, in a great afternoon recording session. It's not It's not late at night. We're not at your house where you, we've got to be quiet because of your children. Yes, people could probably hear in my voice that I'm in my office uh, rather than <laughs> in my uh, living room with children sleeping on every part of my house around me. At every corner of the room? Oh, it's uh, they're everywhere. And we have this house, and it's um, it's the four-level split. So there's you know four very small... Like my old small, house. Yeah, yeah kind of like that. Four small... Flo- I don't want to make it sound like a four-story house. That's not it. Yeah, uh, It's right. four small sections. And so there's kids above and below me everywhere I am. It's just, it's insane. So I can't be very loud at my house at night. Nice. Well, we got it. We're a great day that we're recording today, Johnny. In the United States of America, it is midterm election day 2018. Yes. And I had to do some psychological counseling with you so that you would be ready to record (laughs) this afternoon. And I just need to keep you focused now. We got to not be political animals today. You know what? Oh, we're not supposed to be okay. Then I'll keep my next comments to myself. No, I was going to say, I uh, I started listening to a sermon at a, at a church, not my church, a different church, and the, the pastor was saying, we're going to talk about you know, politics versus the kingdom. And I, you know, left, right, center. I just want everybody to kind of like take off their gloves and let's be ready to talk. That was like his intro. Hmm. And then he kind of clears his throat and he goes, I'm a red blooded American. And I was like, oh boy, (laughs) we just got right into it. (laughs) If I was going to start a sermon about uh, the kingdom way, I probably wouldn't start by saying I'm a red blooded American, but hey, let him do what he does. You know what I'm saying? Well, I went to the courthouse here in uh, Jasper County, Iowa. In oh. the courthouse, there's been early voting for the last 30 days. Yeah. We got so, a long early voting session in yeah, Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to the courthouse because my wife needed to renew her driver's license and get a, a new you know address on her driver's license. I mean, we've yep. only been here for 14 months. Sure, yeah. Right? And I just did mine like last month. 
And I said, well, well, we're there. Let's vote. So I got, I did the whole process, had this like secret, the, the secret non-see-through envelope and oh, everything. Get the I had to folder for sure. Yeah. Seal it into. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, I voted. I went down through Johnny and I tried to pick, I didn't do a straight line party. I tried to pick the best people and it was a potpourri of political persuasions and bents. Yes. Looks a like the salad that I had today. <laughs> It did. It probably. It, it probably smelled. I mean, it's politics, so some is some sort of stench in there. <laughs> Potpourri is probably the right word. So I've got that voting uh, done for today, and uh, I can. Yeah, uh, yesterday actually, and so yeah, I was telling uh, some folks in the office today that I, I wasn't going to vote today. Oh no! They were getting all like you know they were getting all like you know hot and bothered, and I'm like, yeah, I voted yesterday. <laughs> Besides, why would you get hot and bothered? Yeah, it's what if I said I wasn't coming to church this weekend? Oh, that's okay. You could just come next weekend. Oh, uh, I would you say know, I'm not going to vote. Oh, you're not going to vote, <laughs> you heathen! Now that it's a religious rite of passage, the election is over. When people are listening to this, they should go listen to last week's theology on mission podcast, which was about discerning your vote. They should have listened before. That was interesting. That was really good. Now, yeah, that was really good. I appreciated that. Yeah, that was really good. It was. It was very. It was very. Uh, uh, a very good conversation yes. about that. It wasn't hyperbole no. or partisanship no, no, or no. anything like it was that. Good. And as we record, we have no idea what the outcome of the midterms nope. is going to be. Nope. We have zero zero idea. Nothing is done yet as we are recording. That's facts. Uh, maybe we should do a special episode tomorrow, Tomorrow, Johnny, commentary oh, on the commentary election for on those the ele- Perfect. within the United States. Perfect. That's a great idea, Jeff. We should definitely not do that. <laughs> definitely not do that. Yeah. All right. So, Johnny, today you are the one who selected our guest for today. Ashley Hales. Yeah, we talk a little bit on here about how I knew who Ashley was, and um, I we share that story, so I don't want to double up. Uh, on all that that's in the recording but uh, I was so glad when I got an advanced copy of Ashley's book and was able to look through it and she is uh, she's a very gifted writer and communicator and uh, she put together a really uh, a really great book called Finding Holy in the Suburbs and this conversation uh, uses that as a springboard but it's not necessarily just that Uh, we go kind of all over so so she's a PhD in literature, I think. Yeah, right? English, some so, some kind of English, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So she's like she's off the chart, you know, in terms of uh, elucidation, thought, oh, and things like ooh, that. There you you go. know, that's I don't think that's actually a she's word. She's indefatigable. But <laughs> she's indefatigable. Yes, exactly. When it comes to smarts, and and yet, what qualifies her? That does not qualify her to be on the podcast. What qualifies her is that her and her husband have planted a church. And they're in Southern California, right? Are they in? Or- they're in Orange County, aren't they? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So they planted a church. They've got a small church, a uh, small church pastor and wife. And we talked a little bit about that. Uh, that's what qualifies her. What What actually gets her on the call, though, is the PhD, because that's pretty darn exciting to talk to somebody who's that focused academically. Yeah. So she uh, she does a great job. I think that you're going to enjoy uh, this conversation. She was uh, it was wonderful. She was very capable of picking up a thread and r- just carrying it and not needing a whole bunch of advance notice on questions. So Ashley, we appreciate it, and this is our conversation with Ashley Hales. Thank you, Ashley Hales, for being on the podcast with us. Ashley, I know that I know you because of my wife, but now I want to know why you know my wife. 
I don't even, like, how do all of these strange internet friendships start? I don't, I don't know. But yeah. Kayla and I connected, and I was like, she is the type of woman that I want to be virtual friends with since we're yes. across the country from one another. So we've just kind of hit it off. It's been fun. That's so great. She is like the queen of virtual friendships. I mean, she and like, she's got people all, all I think we could travel anywhere in the country and we sh- could have supper with people all over the place because she's got all these friendships and it's always great to meet people in real life. This is close to real life, Ashley. Yeah. Now we're having a conversation. Exactly. Um, but I do remember uh, the first time my wife told me about you, we were getting ready to move to Des Moines uh, area, Mm -hmm. which despite being in Iowa does have suburbs. And I was going to be taking a job as a campus pastor Mm -hmm. uh, in a suburban church, a very affluent environment, a Mm -hmm. very, yeah, all the things that the suburbs can be environment. And I said to Kayla, I'm not sure that I really know how to minister in that kind of environment. And she Mm -hmm. said, you know, I actually know somebody who's writing a book about that very thing. <laughs> and here, here I am. Here you, and are, here you are. And here's the book. <laughs> and we, she, you gave her like a advanced, advanced copy. This thing's not even bound. It's like in plastic. You must be really special. I think so. That's what I'm using for our conversation. So Ashley Hales, you wrote the book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs. Tell me what uh, what made you want to do that? I've always been really fascinated by the idea of place and how place affects us. My husband and I have moved around a bit. We've lived in cities and we grew up in the suburbs. Uh, we lived overseas. And so I think for one, it's been kind of the framework for how I've understood my Christian life um, and my adult life. But two, I think the reason why the suburbs particularly were interesting to me is, one, I just realized when I moved back to the suburbs that I was pretty snobbish (laughs) about my place. And so I wanted to interrogate the deeper question of when circumstances are challenging or difficult, is God still good? And I really wanted to press in to the stories in Scripture. And you'll see in the opening uh, opening introduction of my book, I talk about the parable of the prodigal son, and those are the sorts of stories that I wanted to press into when things are hard, when we've lost our way, is God good? How do we get there? So Ashley, how does where you live, Mm -hmm. and I assume, is that what you're talking about when you say place? Yep. Where you live, what does that have to do with is God good or not? Mm, Yeah, thank you. You know, I think the places help to form our loves. And I am convinced, um, along with people like Jamie Smith, that we do things and we live and we work and we play and and we make our decisions based on our affections um, more than like, oh, this is some rational thing that I assent to. And so I think for the idea of the book, right, is to say that places shape our loves. And if places shape our loves, how are we being shaped by our place? And how are we being shaped by the story of the gospel? And so if our places are challenging places for us to live, or if circumstances go awry, is God good in those situations? And how can I live into a deeper story that helps to kind of make me stable and rooted so that I am able to share the gospel with my neighbors or simply be um, a good parent or whatever it is that God has called us to. Okay, so if I use the term my loves, mm-hmm. I'd be talking about the four people that are already grown up and gone out of my home. Mm-hmm. So when you say our loves, mm-hmm. what, do you, what exactly do you mean by our loves? I mean that we make our choices of how we spend our time on the things that we value. And I think we often 
I have this mental assent to certain things like I value my family, I value my freedom, I value, you know, my church. Um, but then we spend all of our time, you know, going to parties or, you know, all of our extra money upgrading our granite kitchen countertops. Um, and so how we spend our time and our money really shows us actually what we functionally value, what are our functional loves. And I think at least I know for a lot of us, including myself at various points, we say we love God, we say we love his church, and yet we functionally value different things. We value our kids' test scores or their you know, soccer prowess or whatever it is more than we say that we value belonging to the kingdom of God in a daily way. So our loves is what we value, mm-hmm. and you're saying you're saying our sense of place and Informed. our understanding of who we are and where we are informs what our values are going to be and what we value. Right, and I think and I think honestly, there's a big disconnect, if I may be so bold, as to say I think it seems that we have at least a lot of us in evangelical circles have grown up believing that. To follow Jesus, to follow God, means assenting to some rational, intellectual beliefs about God and the Bible and our role in the world. And that is important. We are supposed to have rational, thoughtful arguments and to to have reasons for our belief. But But. (laughs) But I think I've noticed, at least for us, my husband and I, church planting, that we've grown up, we have lots of people who grew up in the church, and yet they have no sense of having a transformed life or, you know, they've left the church because it just doesn't seem relevant anymore to their own current circumstances. And so I guess we are trying to figure out how do we on the ground help people walk this path of transformation in really small, practical, concrete ways so that we are helping each other retrain our loves and our habits by what we do um, so that who we say we are actually lines up with what we do. So kingdom loves. Yes. I like it. Okay. Now I understand. That's good. That's great. So Ashley, really this book could be finding holy in the inner city, finding holy in the rural area that you occupy. Mm -hmm. Why finding holy in the suburbs? Because I'll just say, um, I have a tendency to think that the suburbs are problematic, but other people think the suburbs are great. But what you're saying is your place will influence you no matter what. So why did you pick the suburbs? Well, one is I live in the suburbs. <laughs> so, um, but I think, you know, I think at least in the circles that I'm running in, most of the time, any sort of idea about missional living or kingdom work has tended to focus on the cities. And we have kind of created this, I don't know, Christian idolatry of urban centers. And what I mean by that is to say that because we've kind of bought this idea that all of cultural influence and happens in urban areas, that therefore, We've mistakenly said that the like other places, other spots um, of the country or overseas don't matter. So, you know, if you don't get called to Africa as a missionary, secondly, then you need to be like in a major metropolitan area, either working amongst the cultural elite or kind of the urban poor. <laughs> and I was reading books about people who are living in, you know, with refugee communities and, you know, we're really like on the wrong side of the tracks and all of these things. And I was like, is it okay that we're planting a church in the suburbs was another right. question that kind of helps fuel this book. And I'd, I've discovered as we've lived here for a few years is that there are problems everywhere, that people are broken everywhere, um, that we need to live on mission wherever God has placed us. So, that's not to say that God shouldn't, you know, be moving in your heart and your life and your church and your ministry 
in an inner city or in amongst cultural elites. I think that the what I want to do is to help people understand that the suburbs are a mission field too, and to, to give people some glasses with which to view their place and to be discerning about how their place is shaping them, and then to articulate the gospel back to themselves and their communities so that they can actually do good kingdom work on the ground in their own suburb and to tell people it's okay to live in the suburbs. You just have like, like in any place, you have to know it well and you have to learn to love it and you have to learn to both call out the sin that's there and to show them the goodness that's there. So Ashley, you and your husband, it could be said that you don't want people with ministerial aspirations to embrace missiological urban olatry. Yes, I love that. Can can I should I write that on my website? <laughs> you, you can have that. You can have that. That you know, missiological urban olatry with a circle around it and a slash through it. Okay. Yeah. No. Huh? I, uh, sure. I think you know. I think there's been so much good at people who have articulated so carefully how cities shape our desires and our affections and then how to speak the gospel into those spaces. And I don't want to say that that is somehow less than. I do want to say, though, that unfortunately, when you get second, third generation from those kind of pioneers, we can just kind of take the undertow of that rather than actually seeing, well, really what they've tried to do is say, here's how the gospel makes sense for this place. And so that that idea can help you if you're amongst blue-collar workers, you know, in a rural spot, if you're amongst impoverished folks um, down the street from you, like it, that you can have those lenses wherever you find yourself. So I don't want to like bash cities because I do love cities. I was part of a conversation once where the, there was a, uh, people were laughing and being, what's the word, derisive toward, uh-huh. uh, Oh yeah, those pastors who just pastor out in the suburbs as yeah. though, you know, that's that's easy. That's not real. You know, that's where cushy. you go to Yeah, that's the cushy work. What right. do you say to that? If somebody's well, I listening mean, I and think... either feels that way or somebody's listening in the suburbs and is saying, dude, what the heck? Right. I think I think there's two things. One is I I think we kind of thought that. We thought, oh, like we're going to plant a church and it's like low hanging fruit and it's going to be amazing because everyone's kind of a little bit churched. Um, but we're finding there's just different problems and it doesn't make doing gospel work any easier. It just looks different for us, particularly people are super busy and they've kind of idealized their children and their children's sports schedules. And so even getting people to commit or to see the church as something different than a consumer choice has been super challenging here. Whereas there's going to be different different problems in different areas. So I think on the one hand, that's really important to note. Like, it's not easy. It's just different. <laughs> and secondly, to, just to, to think about, we can either like grass is greener based on, you know, place, just like sure. anything else. And I think it just that we, we need to be really rooted and really present in our place, in our bodies, in our communities, and just embrace what we got rather than, oh, they must have it easier over there. I have internally, I suppose, uh, been referring to certain things about the suburbs as the suburban malaise. And Mm, mm. I can think of some things that I think are part of the suburban malaise. But you you have – your chapters are kind of broken out into some of these things. What are some Mm -hmm. of the issues that you believe – are true in the suburbs, and I would say probably true of much of affluent American life. Yeah, I, and I think that's exactly right. There's a lot that's really, even if you don't live in the suburbs, my book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, I think is really helpful because a lot of it is exactly as you say, you know, those who 
are kind of upper middle class, middle class folks. Anyway, I think, you know, the things like busyness and things like consumerism, and that's not simply like if you just like to go shopping, but that we are viewing our our relationships, our time as transactional. And so that also leads to this very individualistic culture that is, you know, life is all about me, it revolves around me. Um, at best, it might revolve around my nuclear family, but basically it's all about me. And so we don't feel that we're implicated in each other's lives. We don't need to depend on one another for our spiritual sustenance or any other really forms of community unless we choose to opt in. And then the ideal of safety, I think, is something that I see a lot as well, that this kind of we're motivated by fear to withdraw from people who are different from ourselves, because usually we have the financial resources to do so in suburbia. And so these sorts of things really are contributing to loneliness, um, lack of meaning, um, this sense that we don't want to risk much, and that ultimately we find ourselves isolated, and we don't really see ourselves in need of grace when we are kind of ruled by those suburban forms of malaise, as you said. I think that there's pastors listening right now, men and women, who uh, lead congregations, and maybe even in their own life, because pastors aren't immune to these things either, who are experiencing the after effects of that lifestyle, of Mm -hmm. the individualistic or the safety-driven or the busy lifestyle. I'm sorry, Ashley, because we're talking about your book, but I'm not like just pulling quotes. And it's <laughs> so okay. We're bad at that. I'm, I want to get to other questions too. Um, okay. You you mentioned Jamie Smith at the beginning, and uh, you know Jamie Smith is what a liturgist, right? Is that how he yeah. calls himself? And he's he believes that liturgy will save the world. And I don't want to be dismissive, but I am not a liturgist, and so you know I don't know if I believe liturgy will save the world. But tell me how you. Yeah. practice a liturgy that moves you away from busyness, mm-hmm. consumerism, individualism? What is the counter story mm-hmm. that you tell and maybe your church tells to combat those? Yeah, that's great. Well, at the end of every chapter in my book, I do want to just mention, I have like little practical, I call them counter liturgies. Um, yes. So, you know, that they are little, very small baby steps that allow you to kind of train yourself away from the story that your place wants to suck you into. (laughs) Um, I have stuff like, you know, take a fast from social media or fast from, you know, have a no shopping month or, you know, but then also to hold feasting with that so that, you know, that you're actually like preparing food and that you're gathering with people. And so some of those sorts of rhythms um, are really helpful and they're fun to just like practice and say, Hey, let's just try this out. See how it affects me over time. For me personally, one thing that I really have focused on and say, this is good for my mental health is just like, I go on walks all the time and go on walks by myself. I take my kids along with me. And this morning I went on a walk with my sister-in-law and it allows me to see my place and not just imagine my place. And it's really easy to dismiss a culture or a place when you don't know it and you don't see it. And so walking my neighborhood helps me to see it. It helps me to grow compassion for it. It helps me process and think and pray and repent and all of those good spiritual disciplines. So for me, honestly, walking regularly is one just dis- kind of spiritual discipline of reorienting my heart to my place because most of the times I want to analyze it or I want to be snobbish about it or you know bemoan it and I you know, I'm implicated in the same 
issues as everyone around me as well. Okay, Ashley, I'm going to take us just in a little bit different direction. Sure. Tell us about your family. Okay, so my husband and I have been married for 16 years, and we met in high school, set up on a blind date which is odd when you're 17, but nevertheless, um, <laughs> we dated and got married after high, uh, college, not high school. Um, and then we have four children, three boys and a girl, ages 11 to four. So you're busy, and yet you have a PhD, and you've written a book. Yep. So tell <laughs> us about your PhD. What, what did you, what'd you do, do that work in? And tell us what direction you were writing and researching on. Yeah, so... Um, I started my PhD right after Bryce and I got married. We moved a year later. We moved to Scotland, and he did seminary there, and I started my PhD work in English literature. And I studied some Enlightenment philosophy and emigration narratives in the late 18th century, so travel writing. And it really kind of was born out of we were foreigners in Scotland, and so I wanted to also, like, figure out what does it look like to be a stranger in a strange land? Um, what does it look like to move place? Um, how do we create connection between people who have moved around a lot? So some of these sorts of questions have been following me for several years now. A long time. Yeah. A long time. And you moved back from Europe and you came back here. We came, let's see, what did we then do? what did you do? We had a few years in Pasadena where he worked as an assistant pastor, and then we thought we were going to go into church planting, so we did a year apprentice apprenticeship um, in San Diego, and that's when the economy kind of bottom dropped out in 2008 mm -hmm. So we said, ah, we're not going to plant a church, and so we moved off to Salt Lake City for my husband to start a campus ministry, so we were there for six years, had two more kids there, and then moved back three years ago back home to the Southern California suburbs. So you talk about a sense of place and we are foreigners and you spent six years in Salt Lake City. Connect the dots there. Mm. What did you experience? You know, being in the city was really fun because um, I, primarily, I mean, we were there after the Olympics and so we're there in 2002. And I think uh, there was a sense in which as Salt Lake City needed to host a worldwide thing. It really kind of had this different sense about it. Uh, it kind of changed culturally post hosting the Olympics and that it really became less of this insular closed space and more a, a sense of we understand that even though we have this dominant Mormon culture, that not mm -hmm. everybody comes from that perspective. And so the, the city really grew and it still was when we were there, it was really booming still like a lot of immigrants, um, refugees that get placed. Um, they get placed in Salt Lake City. It's really, they have great services. It's really safe. And, you know, we had, we were in the city, we lived in a neighborhood, but we, we didn't actually have a ton of LDS neighbors. Um, but yet the LDS culture affects everything, right? Even our address is yeah. based on the distance from the Mormon temple. And, but it hmm. also made it really easy to talk about things like faith with everybody. Um, we were at the University of Utah. You know, half the students who come from out of state are coming from the mountains. They're coming to hike and to bike and to ski and to climb. And, you know, another half are in-state LDS students. And so it really helped us try to figure out how do we create community? How do we belong to a place? How do we get to know the place? My husband ended up taking classes on Mormonism and, and getting to know Mormon neighbors. So it helped us to see the cultural values of a place and to be able to try to engage some of those questions that we've so then you, taken on. You left Salt Lake City, and did you move right to where you are now? We did. Tell me about the transition there. What what prompted it? How did you pick the place where you're at? 
and what kind of support or help assistance did you get in planting this church here? Right. Thank. Yeah. Good question. So um, we moved with one family whom we had met at our church in Salt Lake City, and he had a background in banking, and we just loved them and started kind of dreaming together what what a church might look like. They had some friends in Southern California, and so they knew the area. The four of us were dreaming and planning and praying, and where we are too, we're trying to. We are kind of in mid. We're in Orange County, in between. San Diego and Los Angeles. It's where we grew up. So we really, we understood the culture, although kind of the area that we are in particularly is kind of a more growing area. A lot of the the lands that had originally been used for like cattle farming and stuff. What town is it? What we, town? We are in Ladera Ranch area is what it's called, okay. which was one of these big master plan communities built in early 2000s before everything collapsed. And, you know, there's pools on every other corner and nice walking paths that I take advantage of. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so we moved here because there's a, just, there's a lot more housing coming in too. It's a, it's a growing area. Some of the beach towns are kind of stuck, you know, there's not a lot of young families moving in and there's not a lot of building going on. So it was, a, it was a place that felt like it was vibrant and there aren't really any churches here. One more, Johnny, one more Go question. Ahead, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your husband and are, are you also considered a pastor? No, I'm okay. just, yeah. Yeah, no. You're just, you're I'm just. I'm just. Know. Johnny, I was like, did you hear what she said? Yeah, well, I know, she I'm said sorry, you're just. <laughs> you're just so, a PhD. Yeah. <laughs> That's oh, right. That's what it was. <laughs> That's what she was going to say. We can't all go to three years of seminary. <laughs> Some of us, you know. Ten years of yeah. PhD so, right. so, so tell me what kind of a pastor is your husband? Tell If you were to describe your husband as a pastor, Mm-hmm. Now, not as a husband or as a yeah. guy, but just as a pastor, tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, he is a fabulous preacher. And I don't want to say that. Like, he went over his preaching time limit. He's like, shoot, on Sunday, that was the longest one I've ever gone. I was like, how long was it? He was like, I think it was close to 50 minutes, which he's not like long-winded. Woo! But <laughs> no one knew, no one complained. So he's great at holding people's attention. He's vulnerable uh, in the pulpit, not always in every sphere of his life, <laughs> but he's, he's fabulous. He's a fabulous preacher. I love listening to him preach every Sunday. Um, and he's just great with strategy and vision and executing that. Yeah. He's a really strong leader. So I think the other, the, the things of trying to slowly, you know, get people on board and small group leadership and stuff like that. Those are things that are more challenging, but his like, here's where we're going. I got the vision. Here's our strategy. And he's also just pretty, he's a hard worker. So he has raised a ton of money and he's just pretty relentless. He wants to build relationships in the community and to bring people in who don't know Jesus. That's awesome. Where do you guys meet? We meet at our local elementary school. In the master planned community there? (laughs) And it's the same one my kids go to. So I had, you know, I feel like all my questions are sociological, Jeff. You're asking questions about like, you know, her kids and stuff. Things that people actually care about, right? Yeah, you're right. (laughs) questions are probably very boring to people. (laughs) No, no, go for it. I'm waiting for it. Well, I guess I was going to, I'm sure in a book like this, and you know what, Ashley, if you didn't, everything can be taken out in editing, so this question can disappear. But I'm sure in a book like this, you do research about the suburbs and do research about what, where did these things called the suburbs even come from and how did we get to this place and, you know, all that. I mean, what kind of information did you unearth? But I guess here's my question. Through the lens of faith, 
how did you interpret that information? So as you're learning the history of the suburbs, as you're learning the American history of, you know, white flight and things like that, mm-hmm. how does your religious perspective influence that knowledge? Mm. There's a sense in which primarily like in the 1950s, suburbs were crazy and booming everywhere where, you know, people were because you had the financial resources suddenly to do so. And there's like more disposable income is that people are able to move out of the cities where there's quote all the quote unquote problems. So it kind of gives this idealistic view of what family life could be. Um, but it had the effect of like primarily removing women from, you know, from culture. <laughs> it's where you get sure. like shows like Mad Men, right? Where there's all these housewives that kind of have all this extra energy and they don't know what to do with themselves. And they're all, you know, going crazy because they have only been relegated to kind of a, a certain mode of what it looks like to be a woman. Yeah. And you, you continually to have, you know, the suburbs of the eighties um, that are again, um, trying to kind of distance themselves from quote unquote urban problems. And I think it's important to know that history and to know that basically that the suburbs were built on this kind of model of inequality um, and to own up to that and to own up to that in our own hearts that, yeah, we like being safe and, or we like our white picket fence or we like our granite countertops. And I know we want to think about the fact that there's all of these larger systemic issues with poverty and injustice because we don't, we can't see them quite as readily, but it's right. not to say that they aren't there. And so I think the call, the spiritual call of renewal of a book like mine is for people just to simply wake up, to realize that, you know, it's, it's not to say that you have to buy into that narrative um, and to allow yourself this space to say, okay, God, I know that because there are no little people, like Francis Schaeffer said, like there are also no, no little places. And so it, that you can use me for your kingdom work here, even in the suburbs, you know, there are people who are hurting, there are people that because they have the financial resources to do so can hide their sin, can hide their shame, they can hide their loneliness, they can hide their poverty of spirit or their physical poverty. But it's, just, it's not to say that those things aren't there. And so I think it's just kind of awoken me to my place and to see that we cannot actually run away from problems based on our geography or a zip code or a white fi- or a white picket fence. And so the challenge for Christians in the suburbs is to recognize, I think sometimes maybe we have a little bit lazier souls <laughs> in the suburbs, um, but to recognize that, you know, our churches can be spaces of welcome and they can be places where we are um, in the heart about moving towards people who are different from us. And they can be places where we repent of idolizing whatever, you know, the Joneses up the street. So I, I think, I think for me, I have, I've prayed for great compassion for myself and my neighbors and, you know, what seems to me is stupid, stupid, petty little sins. Um, and to, that God would grow both me to be bold and calling those things out, um, and a great compassion and care for people who are stuck kind of in this cycle of, just trying to stay busy or to stay beautiful or to stay relevant or to continue to always have, you know, the trajectory of their life go up and to the right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the suburbs are still a place that people consciously or unconsciously think that they can run away to and run away from problems. There's a elementary school around the corner from our church. And I, I sat down with the principal of that school and we uh, talked about some things And she shared with me that in the last five years, our suburb has had an influx of immigrant families and refugee Mm -hmm. families. Mm -hmm. And the school is right next to some apartment complexes, which tend to be a gathering place for those types of resettlements. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she shared that in the last five years, they went from 95% 
white non-immigrant to 75% white non-immigrant in Mm -hmm. the school. Mm -hmm. And she had parents come to her and say, we moved to the suburbs to get away from this. Oh, man. Uh, And now she has to manage (laughs) that (laughs) reality with parents. And I think about that as somebody Mm -hmm. who's ministering in the suburbs. Not that I look at my people and assume they have those attitudes, but realizing that that's in the air, as you say, right? That's the... That when we worship these loves that the mm-hmm. suburbs give us, we'll have that kind of attitude, whether implicitly or explicitly. Mm-hmm. And preaching toward the kingdom of God, which moves us away from thinking like that. Yes. Um, but there is just there's a there's a heightened awareness, I think, of those things in the suburbs. Yes. I would agree. I'm yeah, very curious to see how all my neighbors will re- enjoy or not enjoy reading my book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sure. <yeah. laughs> how strong? Now I haven't read this book yet, yeah. Ashley. So yeah. how strong do you come out and you know do you aggressively confront some of these things? I, you've mentioned the granite countertops yeah. a few times. Yeah. Now I'm going to ask you a question. You I have, have to tell yeah, the truth. I have granite countertops. They came <sighs> with my house though. Oh, they came with your this house. This is like this is like the most like suburban guilt answer. Well, it came with the house. <laughs> Sorry. And actually, granite now is outdated. It feels like everyone's doing quartz now where we are. So, oh, throw that well, granite out. I yeah, know. Garbage that granite. It came with a it came with a house, Johnny, and she she wasn't going to get one without granite countertops. Right? Well, I would actually like something more hipstery, like concrete countertops. That would be fun. There you go. Those are pretty cool. Concrete countertops. Yeah. So in, in your book, how much do you, like, how hard-hitting is your book on this? Yeah. You know, Seth Haynes, who wrote a book called Coming Clean, who's lovely, endorsed my book. And he said, and it was one of my favorite endorsements, he says, she only cuts where she can bring healing. And that was really hmm. the line, that that line, that fine line, that balance that I was praying the book would do, that it wouldn't simply come across as, someone smacking you over the head for your granite countertops or your target shopping trips, but that it would really come from a place of encouragement and ultimately hope that the kingdom of God can take all of that and we can repent of that. Um, And we can even enjoy our granite countertops, you know, when they are given as a gift to other people um, and not simply hoarded for ourselves. Or while you're wiping them off, you're thinking about the systemic injustice, right, that you were talking about earlier, which... People with granite countertops generally, ah, uh, this is probably oh, not fair. Jeff. <laughs> generally aren't thinking like about me, that. Jeff, how dare you <laughs> to those folks with granite countertops? Oh. God-fearing people with those countertops. How okay. dare you? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I I'm know, stopping my right mother-in-law there. Just, my mother-in-law just redid her kitchen because they had a leak, and then she just read the book, just, just started reading the book, and she was like, oh, no. <laughs> I was like, it's okay, you know, but it doesn't mean that this is the mode in which we live our lives, right? Is, you know, that we always need better or that we need to upgrade or something. I think I hope to give my readers a wider imagination for the kingdom of God being the story that we live into more than, you know, the story of always you need to work harder, you need to have more, and you need to just keep on, you know, pulling yourselves up by your American bootstraps and working hard. Um, and so a lot of that is going to look like suffering and pain and loss. A lot of it's going to look like inconvenience. A lot of it's going to confuse your family and your friends. But I think it's possible to live like that even in the suburbs. Okay, so we're on the I-5 and we're going south and we're all the way to the right-hand lane. We're just going to move about three lanes to the left with this question. Okay. You guys are pastoring in a small church. Yes. It's 
a hundred people yeah. and you've been doing it for two years. Mm-hmm. What, what are some things that you think you don't struggle alone in? So what are some things you think a lot of our listeners probably struggle with too, just like you do, and you just want to give voice to a couple of those things? As a people in ministry, you mean? Yeah, yeah, as a pastor and wife. Um, you know, I think great disappointment. <laughs> hmm. um, you know, that people are going to disappoint you, people leave. We've been wrestling with issues, like just feeling like we need other people to come alongside and help carry this burden with us. We need... Um, and maybe this is partly with a church plan. So it's a little bit different dynamic than, you know, if you have a full elder board or what have you. Um, but I think just, <laughs> I think it's oddly comforting, right? When you hear other pastors and leaders kind of tell you like, yes, my heart was broken because these people left or, you know, I thought I yeah. could trust this person. And then, you know, they were gossiping about me or I thought this person had my back. And I think the challenge that we have been trying just recently to work in, you know, into our hearts is how do we stay hopeful about humanity? How do we stay soft hearted about humans <laughs> mm-hmm. when, you know, they're fickle, just like we are. Um, and yet we, so we keep trying to, how do we place our, our ultimate trust in Jesus to fuel our ministry um, and to also step back and to have good people that you can trust and maybe that are outside of your ministerial context that can help hold some of that weight. So one is expect to be disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And also that God is good and that he is working ultimately all things for his glory and our good. And so even the pain and suffering and disappointment we pray would not return void. Yeah. And, you know, my wife and I just recently were sitting in the living room. We're over 30 years in ministry and some of the same uh, conversation, mm. you know, that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I think what I've learned is that alongside those people that are disappointing are those people that are receiving. Yes you know, and you're building into, and you'll always have both. Mm -hmm. And I I guess I'm thankful because God has given me the rose colored glasses kind of view of life. And sometimes, most times that's good. Every once in a while, you know, I get hit in the side of the head. I don't see it coming, Mm. but I think about the people that are changed, you know, the people that we actually do make a difference Mm -hmm. with. And And I've been saying, that's the stories that right you have to dwell on and give yes. you know give your heart to is remember all the ways that God's been faithful through those, did, those stories. Did you did you write about any of that in your book? Did you re- reference any of the people, not by name, of course, but just talking about how, or, or is your book not really about ministry? You know, it's it's kind of all the way through, but I mean, it's not a particular book about like, hey, this is a church planter. You know, I think if you're reading, right. you can read everything through that lens, but um, it's not. It's not directly saying, hey, this is how you do it or something. Well, Ashley, it is a good book. I would recommend it. I I think that at some point uh, we're going to probably take a small group through it here at our church because, I mean, it's – and is there a study guide? Uh, Yeah, you know, um, I was just – talking about that recently. So there are, um, one thing as far as a group study goes, the end, the practices at the end of every chapter are super helpful for yep. individuals to go through. And then it, they'd be great to discuss in groups. Then there's also a set of about 15 questions in the back, um, that can be used for group discussion. And I am probably in the new year going to develop some sort of, um, study guide to go along with the book, uh, that will be available on my website. Perfect. Perfect. So finding holy in the suburbs. Let me just say every Christian 
nonfiction book reads the same way. Jeff, I probably shouldn't say that. We have so many of these authors on our podcast, but they're all very didactic. They're all very, uh, you know, here's the lesson I'm trying to get across. Bullet points. Bullet points. Bullet points. Ashley, you have a PhD in English and it shows. I've never written, I've never, I'm sorry, not written. I've never written anything. I've never read, (laughs) I've never read a Christian nonfiction book that I could describe as lyrical. Mm. Um, and yet that's probably how I would describe a lot of the passages here. You don't write in a didactic, I'm a pastor trying to tell you what you should think or do type of way. And it is really, really refreshing. So I would say to anybody who's sick of, uh, the (laughs) same old, same old type of writing and look, it's, it's selling books. So whatever, but who, Anybody who 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 skips the first four paragraphs of every chapter because they know it's just a pointless, you know, right. personal anecdote, um, grab this book mm-hmm. uh, because you'll be challenged, but you'll also find yourself actually, you know, enjoying the way it's enjoying written. Can you reading. imagine? Oh, I love that. Thank you. What a kind compliment. And, you know, I think, you know, I realized early on, like, I enjoy telling stories and I enjoy writing stories. And so why not capitalize on that? After all, Jesus told bunches of stories. So I think we learn best through story. It's well, a great John, you did a great job. Johnny, that was ni- nice of you. I mean, I, I, I can, I can, encourage, you've got a very nice voice, Ashley. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> there, how's that? How's that? Was that encouraging? Yeah. I'm going to write all these compliments on the website. Oh yes, write them all down. <laughs> Don't forget about the felt thing. And then Jeff, yeah. No. Don't forget about the missiological I urbanology. To, like I was just yeah, saying, I haven't read a out. book like this. This is a good book. <laughs> no, Johnny, that was very authentic. Well, that was perfect. I'm glad that you delight our guests like this. I mean, that's a good thing. I was trying to bring, you know, my little meager scrap to the table. All I'm saying, all I'm saying, sh- I feel like I have to explain. All I'm saying, no, no, is I get it. No, I get books it. Books are all about the information yeah. you're getting. They're not writ- written for you to actually enjoy reading. This is different because you actually will. Because she knows reading. how to write. Yes, because she knows it's how to not write. Just the information, which is also top notch, but you might actually enjoy reading it too, which is not what I'm used to with <laughs> non-Christian or non-fiction Christian books. So anyway, that's what. Well, I'm Ashley, we love 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 having phds on the podcast and we love it even more when we have women phds on the podcast thank you we really do so pleasure thank you for uh we know we the third time's a charm they say you know we tried to do this you we tried once you tried once and then we actually got it together today and all got on the line together so it was appreciate you taking the the time tell your husband sometime We'll have to get on with him. Oh, he'd be and, fun. Yeah, that would be great. talk about boring pastor stuff. Okay, sounds good. All right. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks, guys. So, Johnny, out of this conversation, what I realize is it doesn't, we've been, we've been saying this for years, it doesn't really matter the size of your church. It also doesn't matter where you are, whether you're in the suburbs, rural, urban, inner city, you know, just in some medium-sized town, small town, it doesn't really matter. What matters are the people around you and the people in your life and the people in your church. It's relationships, yep. and it's ministering to a group no no matter what the size. I agree. And also, I think uh, she brought up such great points that your context will inform how you minister to people. There are people everywhere. but So we came out of you know Orange City, Iowa, which is rural, 
it's rural and white collar. It's a very strange, unique yeah. blend of a yeah. place. It's a rural, white collar, and, and there's a college in town. And that blend of things informed the way that we did ministry. Now I come here to the suburbs and uh, less of a church culture. Orange City was also a high church culture. And uh, I'm in a context now where people come to church, you know, once a month and they, and that's regular attendance for them. Uh, and I, I'm very glad that these people are in my church in Orange City. If you came once a month, you were a backslidden, you know, uh, you know, heathen. Reprobate. <laughs> but, yes, exactly. You know, that's not the case uh, here. And so it's a different context and learning how that context informs the way that I do ministry. One of the things I learned right away was that people in the suburbs are extraordinarily busy in Orange City, I could ask somebody mm. on Monday if they wanted to get lunch that day. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it and yeah. it'd be no problem. I, I am routinely trying to set up lunches with people two, three weeks out. It, it's just crazy what how full people's calendars are. And so that's one of those things. My zip code is informing the way that I'm doing ministry uh, in some way. And it's important to keep those things in mind. And important to keep those things in mind if you're about to switch churches. Understand, you might not be able to treat this church the way you treated that church, depending on where it is, location-wise. Yes, and I think it takes a while when you're in a new place to really figure out that place True. and yeah. where you fit and what the people are like, because it's easy to come in. So we both just come into new communities in the last year and a half, and it's easy to come in and see everything through the eyes of where you were before. Yes. And you wouldn't necessarily know that things were all that much different because they don't look different on the outside. Right. But the longer you're in a place, the more you learn, you learn the background, you learn the customs, you learn the culture, the better you're able to connect with people. So when I moved from New York to Iowa, uh, I thought that people would be pretty much the same. You know, they look the same. But what I actually found was where I lived in New York compared to where I moved to in Iowa, there was a much higher psychological health where I moved in Iowa from where I came from in New York, in which we straddled two of the poorest counties in the state of New York. Mm, Sure. And just the psychological health, the self-esteem, the self-awareness, all of that was ramped up from maybe like a three to maybe a six or a seven yeah, where we moved in Iowa, so that was that was noticeable, but it wasn't noticeable right away. So I'm finding that I've been where I'm at now for a year, and, and I'm in my year and third month, and I'm going to need probably another year or so, a year or two yeah. before I feel like I really understand yeah. the place where I'm at. Yeah. I remember when I was interviewing here at the bridge and Suzanne said, uh, my senior pastor, she said, we want someone who speaks suburban. We want somebody who speaks suburbs. And I, th- I, <laughs> I remember feeling a little offended <laughs> that, that I was seen as someone who spoke suburbs. I mean, but truthfully, huh. I'm a young, I'm a young, you know, white guy with an upwardly mobile family. You know, on the outside, and so, and that's what the suburbs are full of. And uh, that's not, that's just a statement. It's not a statement of value, it's just a statement. And so, there are realities in the suburbs that I understand um, that maybe others in different life stages or whatever would not be as quick to understand because they're not in the middle of it, is all. And so, I just think it's a good word. If you are, um, if you're struggling with your church a little bit right now, maybe it's time to step and say, hey, how does my, you know, am I struggling because I'm expecting them to conform to 
the way that it was where I grew up. I remember Rob, your friend, told a story of a Dallas Cowboys huge Dallas Cowboys fan moved up to Philly to plant a church and he like would talk about the Cowboys all the time well the Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles want to kill each other always yeah exactly (laughs) this guy's trying to plant a church and he's like making enemies and people in Philly are crazy about their sports man like it's not like a it's not like a ha ha hobby (laughs) like they're not gonna go to your church if you're a Dallas Cowboys fan he didn't last he didn't didn't last last because he didn't know I was zip quote code was informing his ministry so anyway i just think everything that ashley talked about to me that's the biggest takeaway from this is hey sit back and look at some conflict and say is any of this coming because i'm failing to understand the culture of my current situation versus the culture maybe that i came out of yeah that's good that's really good well i hope it does apply to some of our listeners and i hope that you got something out of this and ashley was actually able to get you inspired to think differently about your ministry, yeah. think new thoughts, new new opportunities, uh, and new ways of interacting with people. If nothing else, just to step back, take a deep breath, and consider your place. Yeah. Consider where you are, consider the culture, and appreciate it, because yes. there's always going to be a better place, right? No matter where you are, there's the grass is going to be greener exactly. somewhere, yeah. you know? It, no, no matter how dark it is, the, the sun is shining somewhere, right? It's always going to be better somewhere else. But that's just the point. If you go to that somewhere, it'll be better somewhere yes. else. So to be content. <laughs> to be content where you're at and to understand where you're at. Yep. Johnny, thanks for having Ashley on. She was great. I am grateful to her, and I hope her great success in the sale of her book. We promoted it a little bit, but go to Amazon, check it out. Finding Holy in the Suburbs, and uh, it's Suburbs is in the name, but if you're rural ministry, if you're urban ministry, you know, there's things about this that are going to connect with wherever you are uh, and the situations of your people wherever you are. So uh, I would say check it out. Ashley Hill's book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, is wherever it is you buy books. And Jeff, uh, we are still, we're still on the prowl for high quality guests. We're still always hunting for good quality uh, episode 301 and we just keep on trucking so hey we got a good one coming up next week we're gonna meet up with him what in two days oh yes can yes 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 and so next week is gonna be another great conversation i love these conversations this is my continuing education exactly <laughs> said, this just is free <laughs> being able to read through these and uh and ken sent a book we'll talk about it his name the rest of his name and his book next week but uh you know and this guy this guy's a pastor yep and he wrote a book a few years ago and it sold like over a hundred thousand copies yep. and i remember joking with him well, you know, when you got to the 100,000 copy mark, were you sorry that you committed it all to charity? Yeah, you right. Know? And he was like, no, not at all. So he's writing another one. Yeah. He's written another one, and it's all going to missions work and charity. That's awesome. Which is so wonderful. So I've been looking forward to talking to him. Johnny, thanks for joining me this fine afternoon. And thank all of you for listening. We'll see you next week on the 200 Churches Podcast. My name is Angela, and I want to thank you for listening to this episode. If you haven't already, you should subscribe to our weekly email at 200churches.com and to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You know it. We'll be back next week with another amazing and encouraging episode just for you. Until then, may God bless you as you lead and love His church. Who's Willie James Jennings? He's a professor at Duke, uh, theologian. He wrote 
a lot of books. He wrote the Axe commentary that I'm using right now. Oh yeah, cool. Um, yeah, he's dope. So I think I might have that on my Logos library. I was just oh. looking through it this morning, actually going through some of the training videos on it. Yeah, so it's I, just, it's they've just, uh, they've got me up to Logos eight now. It's just the Belief series. Okay. So nice. I don't know. I like it. I want it already. That's dude. It's so good. It's 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 you know the word biblical is like real textual and like historical. Right. This is just like straight theology and interpretation. Mm. It's kind of cool. So okay, okay, let's do this. Episode three hundred and one. So I say the odds. You do. Okay. Yeah. Since you did one hundred, two hundred, and three hundred, we did one hundred together. We, we which did I both thought do one hundred. I thought that was kind of fun. Yeah. I loved listening to the end. Oh my word, that was so much fun, dude. <laughs> I was like memory lane. I couldn't believe it. No, the only thing better. How does that go, Johnny? I don't have any go? idea what you're talking about. It's like it's like something like okay, we're gonna have to cut this part out. <laughs> something like uh, 